Hi, my name's Sam Breakit and welcome to Brain Spike Back. This is your podcast for all things related to psychology, technology and our society. Advertising is everywhere and each day we are bombarded with adverts trying to convince us to buy goods or services. And given the fact that it's such a deeply entrenched part of our society worth billions of dollars, it probably comes as no surprise that there is a large body of research into the psychology of advertising. This is known as neuromarketing and it is the practice of studying the brain to predict and potentially manipulate consumer behavior and decision making. This will be the topic for today's episode and to discuss this, we are joined by Brett Freeman, the Director of Marketing at Maripipe, a company that conducts creative experiments for brands. In addition to Brett's work at Maripipe, he also studied economics and psychology at Rutgers University and has closely followed the industry for many years. In this episode, you will learn how the gaze of a model in an ad impacts our purchasing decisions, how fear-based ads evoke mirror neurons triggering an emotional response, and how the famous nudge theory can influence the decisions we make. We also discuss the work of famous behavioral economists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and their popular book Think Fast and Slow which won them the Nobel Prize in Economics. And finally Brett also shares with us what further research he believes needs to be done to advance our understanding of how to effectively use neuroscience to improve advertising. And if you like the show or you have any other comments to make then let us know at Sociable on Twitter. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean. Basically, anywhere you get your podcast, we will be there, I promise you. Anyway, without any further ado, here is the show. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brainspike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Well, if we're able to get started, Brett, can you share with our listeners who you are and what you do in the space of advertising? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Brett Freeman. I'm the director of marketing for a marketing technology startup called Marpipe. That's uh, a little meta. Uh, we specialize in ad testing and experimentation. And um, my background is in behavioral decision making or behavioral economics, which is a field I did primary research in at Rutgers University. That's awesome. I absolutely love behavioral economics. That was my favorite part of my degree in psychology. And I was so close to going off to uh, Holland, which I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like one of the leaders in behavioral economics. Uh, so it's awesome to have you here. That's that's awesome. I didn't know you're you're into uh, behavioral econ too. What what? If you don't mind me asking, what kind of fields? Uh, what kind of research were you into? Um, so I honestly haven't studied it for a while. I just remember that when I found out about heuristics and kind of like all the cognitive biases that exist and like how you can just see them in everyday life and how there's a name for them. So it's like, I'll just see like something in my behavior or someone else's behavior and I'll be like confirmation bias. Or then I'll see like something else, like for example, like someone showing like someone winning the lottery and I'm like survivorship bias. And I'm just like (laughs) seeing all these biases and I'm just like, oh my God, this is like insane. Just especially because there's so many of them. It seems that like our thought processes are so riddled with them that to kind of understand that, oh, there's labels for all of these like mistakes we're making. And then you can kind of train yourself to like not make them or be more of a objective thinker. That for me was like a a light bulb moment. So I haven't studied it for a while and I'm not going to profess to to be the expert here. That's why I've got you on. 
but it's definitely something which I absolutely love. That's awesome. That's also perfect because I want to talk a little bit about uh, heuristics later on today because it, it plays a huge role in advertising. As I'm sure you can imagine, since pretty much the goal of advertising is to get people to purchase from an ad they saw five seconds ago that they didn't mean to see because they were scrolling through their, their newsfeed or Instagram or whatever it is. So we can do that later. Yeah, no, definitely. And I honestly think that advertising is one of the best spaces in the real world for examples of psychology and examples of kind of, I suppose, using heuristics and just simple psychological tricks. Uh, we recently did an episode on casinos, and I think that's another great example of how they use like heuristics to trick people. But advertising is something completely different because advertising is so applicable to so many companies. It's not just like one kind of industry. It's it's everywhere. But um, I'd love to understand a little bit more about your backstory. So we're here today to talk about advertising and neuroscience specifically. Um, what first interested you in the subject of advertising and neuroscience? Yeah, so... Neuroscience interested me a lot younger. I think it was around high school. I took a psychology elective class and there were two things that really stood out to me because you do sections on every type of psychology when you're in high school because they kind of just break it up into small parts. But when they spoke about neuroscience, there, there are two things. There's one, the brain is allegedly the most complex system in the universe. And I say allegedly because that's mm -hmm. like according to us saying that about ourselves, which we still yeah. know very little about. Um, so that was one thing that interested me. And the second was that with our current knowledge of the brain and how it works in combination with rigorous psychological research, you can learn to control yourself. Like you were mentioning with cognitive biases, but it goes even deeper right there. If you know the anatomy of your brain and how it functions in a simple cause and effect way, biologically, you can kind of hijack those systems, which I want to talk about a lot later too, because advertising it essentially aims to do just that, aims to hijack your brain into going, I want this right now. And the other piece is that it allows you to kind of push others in a positive direction. So this is more into like the cognitive neuro um, area, but there's this book called Nudge by Richard Thaler, who's a famous behavioral economist. And he kind of invented this idea of paternalistic guidance where you default people to making a choice that is quote unquote objectively better and you can do this by for example the, the big example they always use is organ donation so in america at least we need more organ donors because there are people who need organs and the default has typically been when you're signing up for organ donation it's part of your id process and it defaults to no i don't want to be an organ donor and so most people just don't bother to even look at it they just keep it how it is but if you change that default to yes and make them have to put in effort, it's like an added cognitive load, it's called. But basically extra effort in order for them to choose to donate or not to donate an organ, rather, then uh, people are way more likely to become organ donors. So this is like a one of those simple little heuristical tricks that you can pull to kind of make people act in a better way or whatever you think better is. So those are kind of the two things that really got me interested in neuroscience. The idea that you can learn how to control yourself and others really easily with this knowledge and the fact that this seems like the most challenging thing to understand in the world. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I love that example with the organ donation because I actually think I remember hearing it from Dan O'Reilly, who is one of the people that first got me interested in behavioral economics. 
I'm not sure if I'm saying his surname right. I can't remember now. But um, but uh, yeah, I definitely think that's that's an incredible kind of example. And I can't remember specifically, but I do remember like nudge theory being used to encourage people to save more or in the UK or at least uh, contribute to their pensions more. I can't remember like how it was used, but I do remember like seeing that it's had like an incredible result in um encouraging better finance and i think i've also heard it's been used in like smoking campaigns or anti-smoking campaigns so like you said you can definitely like encourage people to to improve their behavior through these methods and um as for advertising yeah you're you're absolutely right it's a fantastic uh it's it's sneaky in advertising but to be honest advertising is always going to exist and if you're going to do advertising well you may as well do it right and you may as well be the best that you can at it so of course like yeah utilize all these kind of tricks that you can yeah exactly i think at the same time advertising often gets a a bad rep because people like to say oh you're you're forcing people to buy things they don't want to or like you're you're using these psychological tricks to trick people into buying things that maybe they don't have the money for and i think those arguments all make sense but the point that we're in now there is a ton of regulation around what you can do in advertising and it's getting more and more regulated for example, like Google has the, this thing called the cookie, which I'm sure you're aware of because most people understand every website they go to. It says, please accept the fact right. that we're going to track you across the Internet. And uh, but that's getting destroyed in a couple of years. And there's there's this whole movement towards more active part in the user's data and privacy. So you kind of select the people who are advertising to you rather than just getting blasted with things that advertisers think are relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic here. So. <laughs> No, I think it's very applicable. And I would love to move away from like the, perhaps the real world examples or maybe not um, and understand or discuss a little bit more about the research and studies behind this. And I'd love to know what research or studies um, you have come across in this space that has yielded the most interesting insights in your opinion. Yeah, so this is an awesome question. There's so much research in the combination between neuroscience and advertising. There's a whole field called neuromarketing there are a few books that you could pick up like there's a neuromarketing for dummies book which is actually excellent and please don't knock the for dummies series <laughs> um, anyway so there is another thing that i'd like to reference this guy nick colenda who he's put together like beautiful lists of kind of the main research that people actually use and i'll dive into some of it and then tell you about my super secret paper that gives me a huge advantage that i think people are underusing. So mm-hmm. some of the basic stuff that people do, there's a lot of image formatting, a lot of color palettes and basic rhetorical devices that kind of hijack your brain. For example, if you have a model in your ad and she or he is looking at your product in the image, people will follow that model's eye gaze and look at the product. So there's eye tracking studies where you get these devices and scientists will put will basically track people's eye movements, their search patterns are called, on a page. So when they're looking at ad, they first look at the model. People always look at people's faces. And then if the model is looking at the product, they go to see the product. And then if the model is looking, say, at the buy button, or a lot of people will do this, they'll have a model looking at the product and then an arrow underneath the product. And it's the same thing. Your brain sees an arrow and it's automatic. It'll follow that arrow. So model looks at product product goes to arrow, arrow goes to buy button, you press the buy button. And this all happens in a millisecond, but 
that's one real quick trick that kind of just forces you to hit that buy button. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of little cues like this too that people are kind of conditioned with every day. So if you have a model with a super expressive face that matches the tone of the ad, and that's really important. So if you have a face that is showing fear, but it's a happy ad in the background, that's just going to cause dissonance and people are going to skip. They're, they're going to feel uncomfortable. They're not going to want to look at it anymore. But if you have a happy face and the copy is super positive and super happy, what will happen is there are these things called mirror neurons, which essentially are mirror in your brain, whatever you're seeing on someone else. So if you see a super happy expression, you look at that and you automatically mirror that. You'll start to get a little smile. It's really subtle, but you'll feel the emotion they're feeling. And this is the basis of empathy. But with ads, what happens is you feel happy, you associate it with whatever the product is, and then you go, ooh, this thing makes me happy. I want to buy this. And all that happens in a second. You don't actually think any of those thoughts. You just immediately feel, and then you want whatever it is. So this works really well with fear-based ads. This is kind of what like the media is filled with. And everything you see now, especially with COVID and all the riots, it's all, while, while these things are definitely happening, and it's true, it's a lot of fear mongering because you kind of mirror whatever they're talking about. You, you see the fear on TV or you see violence and you just feel uncomfortable. And that kind of alerts your brain and goes, I need to know more about this thing in order to be able to survive. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think you see that so much in so many cases because like um, people in a crowd are so much more influenced by who who's around them. So you might have like your, your average Joe who's just a law-abiding citizen, but when you put them in an environment where it's very different from what they're used to, then you can see their behavior change as well. And I think there's um, a famous psychologist that wrote a book on it like many, many years ago. Either way, it's 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 very interesting that like when put in these situations, yeah, we mirror other people's behaviors and actions. Um, yeah. Um, so on that same note, before I dive into my favorite study of all time, which is actually pretty recent, uh, have you heard of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky? No, okay. enlighten me. So they're cognitive uh, neuroscientists or behavioral economists, whatever you want to call them. But they wrote this book called Thinking Fast and Slow years ago, which they won the Nobel Prize for in economics, where they split the brain into two systems. They basically said there's an ancient, evolutionarily ancient part of your brain, which is our animal brain, and they call that system one. And this is the thing that its only goal is survival. It thinks in instinct. It's impulsive. It's emotional. It's where your fear is seated, and it's where everything that causes your heuristic judgments to occur happens and then there's system two which is mostly the prefrontal cortex it's at the front of your brain which is the newest part to have developed and by newest it's you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years old but new relatively and that's what allows us to think and deliberately consciously make decisions and that's what we associate our identity and our consciousness with but system one that's the old system makes almost all of our decisions so those fear-based approaches I was talking about before, um, some people will call it amygdala jacking. The amygdala is the fear center of your brain, and it's one of the oldest parts. And it's what advertisers aim to hijack, because if you can trigger an emotion that associates with survival, as I was kind of hitting on before, you make people think they need the solution to that. So in an ad, if you can trigger that fear, then people go, how do I fix this problem? And Usually the solution is also provided by the ad, which goes, this product will solve the problem that you're currently worried about. 
So system one and system two are kind of the main ways that people try to implement cognitive biases onto people in order to get them to buy things. And that's the part of advertising, which is maybe a little dirty. Do you think it has anything to do with like gut feeling when people say that I've got a gut feeling about this or when people talk about that sense of gut feeling? Is that ever mentioned in this research, like saying, oh, actually, that's the the part one playing a role in um, in how you're feeling? Yeah, you're, you're hitting on, on the exact thing. So your intuition is all system one. It's always you have all of these little thoughts and memories and things that have occurred to you in the past that you probably don't even actually remember yourself consciously but system one remembers because it just remembers the strong emotional attachment to whatever that event was and that's how you get things like food aversions too uh, where you just like instinctually avoid foods it's probably when you were like two or three you like puked once when you're eating that food and system one remembers that because it just remembers that harsh emotion and, and attachment to that item but system two like you don't have any real memory of that so yeah you're, you're absolutely right and you've mentioned kind of some good examples of like the tools that they use to be effective in influencing people. Do you have any examples of adverts which you can point to and say like, this was a great advert for this, or I remember seeing an advert which elicits this, these emotions through like this process. This was in a great example of this. And don't worry, you can give an American example, even though I'm, I'm British and I might not uh, pick up on your like advertising culture that you've had there. You can still go ahead. Don't worry. Thanks. Thank you. Um, one excellent example. I'm going to use, I'm going to use two actually. So one, one of the most famous ad campaigns of all time, the most interesting man in the world. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, that one I do know. Yeah. Yeah. That, one, that one's pretty big. So the idea behind that, it perfectly emphasizes the role that empathy and, and mirror neurons play because you see this guy who is the most interesting man in the world. I mean, he's, uh, jet skiing he's got beautiful interesting people all around him he's got wine you know wine and whiskey oh actually rather it's always dosa keys because that's what he drinks <laughs> but, but he's, he's got alcohol and these beautiful uh, fireplaces and paintings and so on behind him so what happens here is you you see this commercial and you go wow like i want to be like him you don't actually think that or maybe you do i mean the, the commercial's that good that maybe you consciously are like i want to be that guy but the idea is that you kind of mirror that feeling and you go, I want to be sophisticated. I want to be interesting. I want to have cool experiences. And then it's a simple jump from, oh, okay, this guy's drinking Dosa Keys. I should be drinking Dosa Keys. So that's one really good example. Another yeah, one that is more focused on the emotional aspect, not necessarily mirroring, but just getting to feel strong emotions and to act on them. Apple's 1984 commercial. Have you seen that? I'm not sure. I don't think so. So this is this is an excellent commercial. It was it aired in 1984, which is the year of the eponymous book 1984 by George Orwell. And what they did was they they reimagined a scene from that book where they have they're in a movie theater. There's hundred you know hundreds of people in this movie theater. They're all wearing the same exact clothes. Everything is completely gray. And there's this big brother speaking to them and saying oppressive things. You know we basically we own your life. You know yada yada. And a person runs through the middle of the theater with a massive hammer and dramatic music starts playing, throws the hammer through the screen, breaking all of these people free from their chains. And it just goes Apple coming out with the new Mac. So this was the first, this is when they launched their, the, the very first Mac computer. And this commercial 
blew up. It, it, it launched it. And the reason is because people felt like they were being freed from the oppressive chains of the technology they currently had. And the Mac was revolutionary in, in so many ways. But the commercial perfectly illustrated that. And people felt that emotion of freedom when they looked at Apple and they bought millions of Macintoshes. Now we have Apple, one of the trillion dollar companies. Yeah, I can understand why with advertising like that. Yeah, they're very famous for for having incredible advertising campaigns and definitely you can see the the success they've had is a byproduct of that. So <laughs> congrats on them. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, what further research needs to be done to advance our understanding of how to effectively use neuroscience to improve advertising? So in terms of further research, there is so much left to do in both neuroscience and advertising because neuroscience is extremely young as a field and the technology that we have to measure is one really hard to get because it's so rare and most of it is used for medical research i remember when i was doing research at, at Rutgers, there were lines in order to get like an F fmri machine which is kind of like the best it allows you to see the brain in real time as you're actually doing things. And that's really the only thing you can do for advertising because you need people to be looking at ads as you're studying them, right? So you sometimes have to wait years to get these machines. But I think the first thing that needs to be done is tech needs to become cheaper and it needs to be more available. Uh, I know that's kind of a cop-out, so I'll go into like what actual research should be done. <laughs> so there are three kind of big fields that I like. One is eye tracking, as I was mentioning earlier, and that's also partially because I did a bunch of research with, with eye tracking. Um, mm -hmm. Two, so memory. Memory is really, really important um, for advertising. There's an idea of brand recall, which is essentially just how deeply you can lodge your brand into someone's brain so that when they have the need that you solve for, they think of you instead of the 300 other options that you have. The memory is really important to get more research because the more we learn about memory itself and how it functions in the brain, the more we can use it in, in advertising. So one of the quick things I've mentioned emotion a lot was because it's super relevant. The more that we know about emotion, because emotion is very much attached to memory, but the more that we learn about how to trigger strong emotions, the more we can lodge brands in, in memory. Um, so that's, that's one piece and technology. And then I wanted to touch on my favorite research since Go for I, I, I kind of skipped over it. And I think this is a direction that both neuroscience and advertising are still not necessarily behind on, but could move a lot in this direction. There's a paper that was recently published called the Glasgow norms. The Glasgow norms is the most recent and the most complete attempt at rating words on different aspects that essentially culminate in cognitive load. So I mentioned cognitive load earlier. Basically what that is, is how hard it is for your brain to process something. Uh, and the faster that you can process, the more you like whatever that thing is. That's like a really, really, really simple heuristic. I'm really oversimplifying it. But essentially, if your brain can process a sentence super, super fast, like you don't have to think at all about it, it just happens, then you can get into system one and it feels good to process that information. So system one is like, this is a good thing. That's the heuristic. So the Glasgow norms, rates thousands of words on on nine scales there's arousal there's balance like positive negative dominance concreteness imageability which is how easy it is to imagine age of acquisition 
semantic size, which is actually just the size of the object that the word refers to, and gender association. So each of these correlates positively or negatively with the time it takes your brain to process the word. For example, age of acquisition, right? The younger you learned a word, the faster you process it because it's so deeply ingrained in your memory. Uh, on the other hand, concreteness, right? The more abstract a word is, the less concrete it is, the harder it is for your brain to process because you have to conceptualize rather than immediately get an image in your head. Does that all make mm -hmm. sense so far? Yeah, definitely. And actually, as you say that, the first thing that comes to mind, and I don't know if this is a good example or not, but it's literally the first thing that pops up is like Nike's slogan, just do it. I mean, it's like the simplest uh, slogan that I can think of. And it's also quite encouraging. It evokes kind of emotions of like, <laughs> just just do it. Exactly that. Do you have any examples yourself which you can think of? And would you say that like that Nike example is accurate at like kind of summarizing this? Yeah, yeah. That was that was literally the ideal example. And in fact, they cite Nike's ads as one of their reference points in the paper. So <laughs> you were you were as spot on as possible. Yeah, just do it. It, it hits pretty much all, all the notes. So if we were to walk through it, arousal, it's a high arousal sentence, super short, just do it. It, it immediately makes you think, oh, I want to go do something, right? It's, so it's mm. high arousal. Uh, balance is, is positive. You're, you're, you're acting on something that's very easily associated with positive emotion. Um, it's dominant, right? Like this, this is in every way a call to action to compete, right? Uh, it's, it's got all the sports around it. And so it's very dominant. Concreteness is something that isn't hard to think about, right? You, no matter what you are thinking of at the time, what you're looking at, usually it's someone playing sports, but just do it always implies you're going to do whatever they're doing. So it's extremely concrete. Imageability, same thing. Very easy to imagine. In fact, almost always they have some kind of person playing basketball or running or whatever sport they're focusing on so you, you really don't even need imageability uh, age acquisition those are all words that you learn probably in the first five years of your life i think <laughs> just yeah. doing it or probably in the top 100 <laughs> commonly used words if i could guess so semantic size is one where it would not necessarily qualify but i'll give you an example for semantic size so you can have something like a rainbow versus a ball so a ball is something that is pretty small. A rainbow is something that is pretty big. And as you'd imagine, the larger a thing is, the more bandwidth it takes for your brain to imagine. And so the longer it takes. With Nike, Just Do It doesn't have any words that are necessarily associated with size, but they're all pretty short. And usually whatever sport it's referencing is something that is kind of small, right? Like a basketball or a shoe. These are all small things. And then gender association. So I think gender association is interesting because it depends on your gender. Typically, people process things that are male if they're male faster, female if they're female faster, or anything that they relate to. It's just because you're raised in that uh, association. I won't go yeah. deeper into that for any reason. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you should mention... Um... Rainbow. I'm not sure if this is another one, but I also think of just Skittles when you say that, like taste yes. the rainbow. So yes. it's like, is is that one which like takes off the semantic uh, box, which you'd say? Yeah. Uh, it, it also, again, like positive arousal, positive balance. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's. I want to taste strong. the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Young young age acquisition. Um, so yeah. yeah, this is kind of this, this is my favorite paper by far. So one one last thing I'll I'll add. They were nice enough to give 
readers their data. So there's this huge Excel spreadsheet that ranks thousands of words, as I was saying, and you can just sort it and you can make a little cognitive load metric. I don't know if you add links afterwards, yeah. but I can, I, I, I've done it myself. I've already created kind of a, a sheet that I use all the time. And it's really interesting to see what words are super low cognitive load. I think the number one words are the first, the first few words are all variations of mom, which makes <laughs> sense. Cause that's probably the first word that you learn and has the most associations. <laughs> yeah no yeah um, send it over and um we'll include it when this goes out on the sociable for sure and okay. if people do want to find out more about like the work you're doing and find out more about the work that mara pipes doing how can they do that is there social media they can follow or can they follow you directly yeah so we have every social media imaginable we mostly post on instagram we have a private Slack group that we would love to invite your listeners to, where we post lots of interesting data on uh, creative data. So what Marpipe focuses on is taking pieces of ads and analyzing how they affect people. So where most companies do this thing called A-B testing, where they'll basically say, here are 10 ads. Let's see which one performs best. We'll take 100 ads and go, which expression on the model's face works best? Mm. So we post things like that in, in our Slack group. So I can add some links to that. And then marpipe.com is our website, M-A-R-P-I-P-E.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing this knowledge with us today, Brett. I have, can honestly say that I found it very interesting. It's been very enjoyable. It's like, I, I mean, I enjoy these episodes like always, but at the same time, like discussing this is a topic which I could go on for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to chat more. Uh, thank you cool. for having me on the show. And if you want uh, any more information, I can send you whatever. Awesome. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. And that concludes today's episode. There was a hell of a lot of psychology research and information in there. So I hope you got your fix for the week. And if not, well, you can always go check out our other episodes, which you can find at sociable.co or alternatively, you can find them on any of your favorite podcasting platforms and apps. Until next time, have a great week and take care.